Welcome to Whole and Holy, the Bethel Seminary podcast. I'm Dr. Peter Vogt. I'm the Dean of Bethel Seminary, and I'm joined today by a special guest. John Mark Comer is pastor of Teaching and Vision at Bridgetown Church in downtown Portland. He's married to Tammy, and they have three kids. And I invited him on this episode today because I'd like for us to talk about his recent book, The Ruthless Elimination of Hurry. And this is a book that I picked up. It was recommended to me at a a dean's conference that I was at. Somebody just mentioned it, and I I took some notes on it that they had mentioned that. And then I picked up the book. And uh, John Mark, I have to say, I want to thank you for writing this book. I read the prologue. And once I read the prologue, I was hooked and, and I began to wonder, how is he you know, reading my emails or listening to my prayers to God? Because it really seemed like you, you knew what I was going through and, and a common experience. And I, I realized that maybe many of our listeners would have a similar kind of experience and would benefit from hearing us discuss this, uh, this book. So uh, thank you for writing it. And I'd like, if you could, to just start by sharing with our listeners briefly about what led you to write this book. You talk in it about reaching a a point of burnout and a midlife crisis at the age of of 33. What happened? Oh, well, that's very kind. Um, Yeah, I mean, tragically, that's become a common trope, I think, for our generation. And I mean that broader than just the millennial generation, kind of on both sides, our era. You know, it's very common for, in particular, the more kind of hard-driving type A pastor-leader types to just go really hard and then hit a wall and have the story of burnout, and some of which are followed by recovery and new maturity and health and humility, and um, but not always. It's often followed by a much deeper tragedy. And so, yeah, I mean, honestly, it's just the common thing. Church planted in my 20s and... Um, things went very well, at least by kind of American standards. But with each passing year, I just grew more and more tired. I would say year one of church planning was really hard, but so much fun. Year two was really hard, but still really fun. Year hard was year three was hard and not fun anymore. <laughs> and by year four, I was just dying, you know. And um, so I just, and there was this interesting thing. It was more than just an emotional, so it was kind of an early midlife crisis, but it was more than just emotional burnout for me. Um, There were some much larger questions I was asking about kind of what role do I play in the church? And I think there is very much a stereotype of a pastor and of a lead pastor that you kind of feel the subconscious, and it wasn't necessarily put on me, but feel the subconscious like, you know, drive that you have to fit into that just was not working for the fabric of how God set me up. And I think the role that I was made to play in the church. And so, so there was a kind of existential crisis there, but then there was even a bit of a spiritual crisis, not in the sense of like a loss of faith, but in the sense of, you know, growing up in the church and I'm the son of a pastor, you know, and I've been following Jesus as long as I can remember. And through my teenage years, when I really started to take it seriously, and college, and my 20s, and the first year or two of church planning, I felt this, um, it wasn't linear, but this sense of growth, like year over year, I felt like I was moving forward. Maybe that's Mm -hmm. not the right way to frame it, but in my kind of discipleship to Jesus, and my spiritual formation, and my growth into wholeness in your language. But then in about my mid-20s, I just felt like I hit this plateau. 
Mm. Like I just was, you know, year over year, I was not becoming more loving or more joyful or more peaceful. And then as we got a few years into church planning, all the stress of adulting in general and leadership <laughs> in particular, which I was just not ready for that level of emotional duress. And, the, you know, I'm reading two Corinthians right now, just the hardship of, mm -hmm. of leadership in the kingdom of God. And I know we're not living in, you know, the ancient Mediterranean under persecution from the empire, but still like there's a hardship to it. And so then I actually felt like I began to kind of regress, like not, not only was I not progressing, I felt like I was regressing yeah. and becoming more and more anxious and irritable and addicted to my phone and, um, and distracted and distractible and unloving with the people closest to me and angry in my leadership style and not aware really of my shadow side or not really knowing how to deal with it. So that kind of just brought me to this turning point. It was kind of this three, you know, perfect storm of emotional burnout in one level, existential, like what am I made to do in the world moment on the leadership side. And then this deeper spiritual question of, man, if, if the end of the spiritual journey is union with God and deification, as my Eastern Orthodox friends say, you know, theosis, yeah. becoming like Jesus, Christ likeness, whatever you want to call it. If that's the end goal, man, something about the way that I'm following Jesus is not in cooperation with that, that telos mm. that the spirit of Jesus has me on. Something about the way I'm following Jesus was off. And so that all kind of brought me to this crisis point, which is when I came across the story from Dallas Willard and John Ortberg about hurry and the role that it plays. And we can happy to chat about that if you want. And it was just like the linchpin moments, like mm. everything kind of fell into place. And from there it was kind of, all right, let's chart a new trajectory. Yeah. Boy, that's great. So would you talk a little bit? I mean, what, why is hurry such a big deal, particularly for, for people in ministry? Well, I mean, I think at bare bones, my basic thesis is that hurry is incompatible with love. And I've been thinking a lot and working with the kind of John's paradigm. And I think you could say the same is true for Paul about love, joy, and peace as the kind of central dispositions of the disciple of Jesus in the kingdom. And I think faith, hope, and love, the theological virtues are almost like the means by which we become people of love, joy, and peace. And I think those are virtues, you know, not if you want to use that language, um, or character traits. They are aspects of who we become. They're not just feelings that come over us and go away. And all three, in my view, are incompatible with a life of speed. Now, when I say hurry, just to clarify what I mean, semantics here, um, you know, hurry, busyness, you know, those are synonyms, but there's a healthy kind of busyness that you see in the life of Jesus, which is where you just have a lot to do mm -hmm. and your life is generative and you're up early in the morning and you work hard and you have that ethic in you and you're not wasting your life, you know, playing video games or whatever, like you're giving your life away. By that definition, Jesus himself was busy. You could argue he's very busy, but there's another definition of busyness, what Ronald Wolheiser calls pathological busyness. And the essence of that is not a lot to do. It's too much to do mm. and not enough time to do it all. And so the only way to even attempt it is to speed up the pace of your, your mind, your body, your relationships, and your interactions with other people, including God and including your own soul, to this pace that I just think is, is 
it's, you know, Eugene Peterson called it antichrist. It's anti-Christian. That's just not at the pace of, you know, Kusuki Koyama, the Japanese theologian, writes about the speed of love. Mm. He, write, he has this beautiful essay, you can read it in 10 minutes, called Three Mile an Hour God. Mm. And three miles, I had to Google that. Apparently, three miles per hour is the speed at which you walk. And mm. he writes about how God is a three mile per hour God because walking is the speed of love. And um, he could go faster, but he would lose us. And so I think the speed of Jesus, the speed of love, is, is not a hurried hustle and bustle, you know, kind of frenetic, let's get it all done, take over the world kind of spirit. It's a spirit of presence to the moment, to God, to your own soul. I only do what I see the Father doing, of kind of even a relaxation in the healthy sense of that word, a powerful relaxation or a relaxed power, as one scholar I read put it. And so I think um, hurry is incompatible with love, joy, and peace. And, you know, the, the tragic and the, the beauty and the tragedy of leadership and pastoral leadership is in Scazzaro's language, as the leaders go, so goes the church. Mm -hmm. And your church will become like you for better or for worse. And a church, you know, I think Scazzaro would say, or has said, a church will rarely rise above the level of emotional health and spiritual maturity of its highest level of leaders. There are exceptions to that rule, but that's exactly what they are, exceptions. Hmm. And so if I'm not, if, if I'm stressed out and in a hurry and exhausted and irritable and not present to God and the person in front of me and not living in the flow of the spirit of love, then I should not expect any different from the people that I'm leading. And so what I want to see in my church, not my church, but our community is the same thing that first has to grow in the soil of my own heart. Hmm. Well, and you talk in the book about how you implemented that, uh, which I think is pretty striking. I mean, you were the, the lead pastor of a multi-site church and, and then you chose to be the pastor of just one, one site and, and, you know, you really seek to implement that. And one of the questions I have is just, you know, the, it's a countercultural, a radically countercultural approach to things. And I'm, I'm struck by that and, and just wondering about how you manage that or, or what you might have for our listeners who are thinking about this with the, the realities of, of ministry and the, and the pressures. And maybe, maybe it takes that reframing of thinking about what ministry is in, in that regard. But, you know, for example, do you, you really do email only on Mondays? Is that, uh, is that right? <laughs> that is true. Yeah. I mean, that's a bit of a privilege I have because of the way our staff is structured, but yes, I only do email once a week. Wow. I mean, that, I, I was a pastor as well before I um, came back to the seminary. I'd been a professor, then a pastor, and now back. Um, that's staggering to me. I don't know how, <laughs> I, I wouldn't know how to make that work. So what, um, what, what do you say? I mean, how does one go about doing this in the, in the reality of ministry and, and the expectations of a congregation? for you know, the accessibility of their pastor and, and these sorts of things that, that either are real pressures or the pressures we put on ourselves. Yeah, and it's really good that you distinguish between the two because I think, um, first off, there's a lot of pressure I put on myself that was in my own mind. And secondly, then there were pressures that were put on me by other well-meaning people or not so well-meaning people, but that doesn't mean that I need to follow those expectations, mm. you know? Um, people's expectations do not equal the will of God for my life, you know? So, I mean, I think, I, I don't know, I just kind of think about human change, you know, the shortest kind of rubric is 
I think of Dallas Willard's, you know, VIM model, his little acronym, vision, intention, means that for any change from I want to lose 10 pounds to I want to radically overhaul my pastoral life to the speed of love, um, first thing you need is a vision. You need a vision of a way that your life could be different from how it is. And so for this context, that's a vision of you doing less, deeper impact, but less things, less busyness, more prayer, intentionality, presence, focus, whatever it is that God set before you and called you to do in your role. Then intention, vision's not enough, right? You can read my book or you can listen to this podcast and you can think, oh, wow, that's a compelling idea and then go about your life. Mm -hmm. Then you have to have intention, meaning you have to, of your own free will and volition, you have to draw a line in the sand and make a moment of decision in your own heart. Mm-hmm. And I had to come to that point. And most of us only come to that point through desperation when the pain of not changing is greater than the pain of staying the same. Sure. Not always, but most of us. Mm-hmm. And so I can't orchestrate for that you. I can't architect that for you. You have to, that, that is somebody. And often people come to the end of the rope and they, then they just fall off. They don't, they don't actually make the changes they need to. So there has to be a moment of intention. And then third, you need means, meaning just like, practical, you know, whether that's spiritual disciplines or scheduling or, you know, a rule of life for your phone or just a rule of life in general, you need like an actual practical way to go forward. For me, that's, you know, only email on Mondays and, you know, don't look at my phone till 11 a.m. or whatever the thing is. Like I have my little means that help me attempt to slow down my mind and my body to the pace of love and in Paul's language to the Thessalonians to live a quiet life to the best mm-hmm. of my ability, you know? So vision intention means, I mean, I think first you have to, yeah. So basically I think that's it. And then you just have to recognize, you know, you have to decide before God, what you sense that God has, what kind of life that God has called you to do. And all of us have different capacities. So some mm-hmm. people have a much higher capacity than others, you know, at least for task or for people. And, and we're all a little bit different. I have, a high t- capacity for task, but I'm very introverted. So I don't have a super high capacity for relational conflict or leadership or people stuff. I love people, um, especially in like one-on-one spiritual direction kind of spaces, but like meet management and meetings and mm-hmm. running community stuff. That's just like, I'm bleeding out my eyes after about an hour <laughs> and a half, you know? So I have a high capacity in some areas of my life, low capacity in others. I have a very low emotional capacity. Um, Overall, I think when I'm healthy, I'm very joyful and at peace. But um, the moment I get kind of over my limits, I slip into this kind of melancholic, depressive state, anxious Mm. state really fast. It's my limp. And I'll walk with it the rest of my life. So some people can run you know, churches of 30, 40,000 people and be really healthy and happy and good parents. And, you know, I think a lot of that is a mirage. And most of the ones that are healthy and thriving at the top are actually not working a hundred hours. Most of them are actually working very normal hours mm. and are just really good leaders and really smart with their time. It's one of the first things I've realized is the people that are the most successful are not always the hustle, mm. grind it till, you know what I mean? Often they work there, they live very differently than you would maybe expect. Yeah. So some people can do it, but you have to wreck it, but I couldn't. And you have to recognize your own capacity before God, you know, and then you really have to decide what value you place on rest. Hmm. You talk in the book then about, you know, kind of how you approach things and you're very clear. And I thought this was really helpful that this is not a one size fits all kind of a thing. It's not a legalistic kind of a, kind of a thing uh, that, but, but I thought they were very challenging and, and intriguing in many respects. What was the, what was the biggest challenge for you? Or I, I guess both the biggest challenge and then also what, was the biggest payoff for you in terms of, uh, 
you know, kind of some of the practices that you developed for yourself. Um, so what was most challenging and also what had the biggest payoff for you? Maybe they're the same or maybe they're different. Yeah, I think what was most challenging was one of two things. Either, and it's still the most challenging things, either negotiating uh, my relationship to my phone mm -hmm. in the digital age, yep. which just wants to encroach on every minute of every day and erode any and all space that I have mm -hmm. for the kind of life that I think God wants to set before me. Or the other great challenge would be just saying no, you know, mm -hmm. That's really hard for me. I think it's hard for most people. It's not clear all the time what to say. I'm going to come up with my little rubrics to the best of my ability, but how do you know what to say no mm -hmm. to, what to say yes to? I say no so much that you just start feeling like a jerk, <laughs> and then I just feel guilty, and then I have a pastoral guilt, you know? And obviously, I'm, you know, I'm quicker to say yes you know, to people in our church and stuff like that than to other opportunities or things, but... Um, I think learning to say no and learning to not let my phone dominate my life. Those are the two, still are the two greatest challenges and the two areas that will just kind of encroach right into my new rule of life. The greatest payoff, I would say, was twofold. And it's really the same thing. I mean, not to sound trite, but the greatest payoff was just to um, really come back to God and my quiet prayer, a sense of his presence and really feel like I'm just moving forward in spiritual formation. Frankly, I just feel, I, don't, I feel like I have so far to go. Oh my gosh. But I feel like year over year, I'm becoming more like Jesus now. And that just feels, I mean, I really think that, you know, many other than just our, I think the greatest thing that Jesus gets out of our life is not our leadership. It's not our teaching. It's not, you know, books I write or whatever. It's just a relational presence with Jesus and it's the person we become. And I think that's the greatest thing we get out of our life is, mm -hmm. you know, man, our time with Jesus and relational connection through abiding and, um, and the person that we become, the, the, the way that Christ is formed in us in Paul's language that grows mm -hmm. and takes root in us and, and comes to birth in us, you know? And so I think just, honestly, time in prayer and becoming more like Jesus have been by far the highlight. And ironically, unexpectedly, they've actually just enriched my ministry like I never thought possible. I don't think I realized how much of, you know, orthodox exegetical Bible teaching and basic Christian leadership I was doing, but without a spirit of humility and love and peace and mm. gentleness and wisdom. And so in some ways I'm, you know, doing the, leading the same church I was leading before and doing many of the same things. But I think there's a new spirit that is growing in me mm. that has just enriched my life and work and leadership and teaching in ways that still have a very long ways to go but I'm so grateful. So I, I really think the main thing you get out of your life other than Jesus himself is the person you become with Jesus. Mm. You know, I love the reminder, you know, from Dallas Willard about the idea that we're apprentices and yes. uh, that just that, that language is important. Uh, it's not about what we're producing. It's, it's who we're becoming. Who we're becoming. Yeah. We're trying to become like Jesus. I think that's. And, and the, and the doing flows out of that being. Yeah. So I don't like the bifurcation between we're human beings, not human doings. I, I just think that's not helpful. I don't think it's good biblical theology. I don't think it lines up with the uh, functional view of the Imago Dei in Genesis one. But I do think that, you know, our doing has to flow out of our being or it will for better or for worse. You know, and when Jesus called the disciples first, he just said, come and be with me. Just come and see, come be with yeah. me. 
And they spent years just kind of sitting on his feet and listening and watching and learning and then eventually helping a little bit. It was years before he was like, now you go out and do the stuff. Mm. And I think there's not a, not a linear step-by-step -step flow there, but there is a progression from being with Jesus to becoming like Jesus to then doing the kinds of things that he would do if he were us. Mm. Yeah, that's great. Well, I, I hope every listener will buy your book and, and read it. Uh, but could you, you know, you talked about your, your kind of practice with respect to the phone. Could you just summarize that? Just because I, I think it's really helpful for people to hear what kinds of things you're talking about that have made a, a difference. You mentioned not, you know, picking up till 11 and, and that sort of thing, only emails on, on Monday. But what are, what are some of the things that you do just to give people a taste of what, uh, what kinds of things have made such a difference for you? Oh, yeah. Well, a great passion of mine, just in general, for the future of the church in the West is the kind of very ancient idea of a rule of life in general. And so I have a rule of life. We're developing one for our church right now that will effect effectively function as our view of our form of membership. Um, but then I think um, I recommend that everybody kind of, again, not a legalistic, because there's no like, command in the book for how to handle your iPhone, but <laughs> have like an, an endum to the rule of life that is just a digital rule of life. And so mine is actually a list, a list of about a dozen rules. Um, and they're basically limits that I put around my relationship to technology because it is engineered intentionally to distract and addict us and steal our attention and monetize our attention in order to manipulate us to mm -hmm. buy things or think certain things or vote for certain candidates or adopt certain positions that are often contradictory or whatever. So I just don't want, I don't want to get sucked in. So um, some of my digital rule of life things would be, uh, I think this is Andy Crouch's language, but parent your phone. So um, meaning, you know, if you have little kids, you put your kids to bed before you go to bed and they wake up after you wake up so you can have some peace and quiet and relational connection with your spouse or whatever. So my phone goes to bed, so to speak, at 8.30 every night. Um, I put it in a closet mm -hmm. and in a charger and it's out of sight, out of mind. I don't sleep with it. It's not my alarm clock. It's nowhere in my bedroom. 8.30, it's gone. And then um, depending, each day is a little bit different, but um, on most days, I'm not allowed to take it out till 11 a.m. and look at it. So it's 9.27 right now, my time as we're recording this, and I have not looked at my phone. I have no idea what the text messages are, any of that kind of stuff. Um, so that's a huge one for me. Second is I attempt, um, and this is really hard, but text message bundling. So I try to just do a big flurry of text messages twice a day at 11 a.m. and then again at the end of my workday around five or six. And then I'll check it, you know, like if, if I'm running late, I'll be like 10 minutes late or whatever. Mm -hmm. And I'll normally check it before I put it away at 8.30, you know. Um, but just kind of have a couple set times so I'm not on my phone all the time. Um, other things is I've taken all social media except Instagram off my phone because that one only works there. I do email once a week. That's huge. We don't own a TV. Um, so that really helps with that kind of stuff. There's no TV over our fireplace or in our living room or anything. We'll still watch movies once in a while, but it's like all of us as a family on my laptop on the couch. Like it's very, our house is not designed to nudge us toward, you know, entertainment kind of thing. So, um, yeah, it's stuff. And then, you know, every Sabbath, I take a digital Sabbath as well. So all device, like every single computer, iPad, everything in our house goes off for 24 full hours, which is actually a lot of doctors that are saying just for pure health reasons and neurobiological mm -hmm. functioning reasons you need that, kids, people. Um, so we do that for our kids as well. And then every year on vacation, I turn it off for longer. So this last year was 
three full weeks, every single, my phone was off. It was glorious. So, <laughs> stuff, and just stuff, stuff like that to build habits that kind of break, you know, kind of break. Um, and then other stuff like no, I have zero alerts on my phone. I don't read the news on my phone. I don't have email on my phone. It's just, it's, it's a tool again, mm -hmm. you know? So. Stuff wow, like that's, that. that's great. That's helpful. And I think that gives our listeners, like I said, just kind of a sample of what, what we're talking about here. And I think you can make your own. I encourage sure. to sit down, you know what I mean? And we had our whole church do this. And every, people came up with great different things. Some of them are simple, you know, like no phone at the dinner table. Like, of course, I mean, I just, the things you think, of course, but then you forget, oh yeah, most people are like families of teenagers and there's like four phones on the table and people are texting like, oh my gosh. So just come up with your own. And it doesn't have to be a legalistic thing. These are self-initiated boundaries that you put around temptation in order to actually live in alignment with your deepest desires. Nobody I know wants to be like a vain, digitally addicted, distractible, anxious, not present to the moment or joyful person. I don't know anybody that wants that. <laughs> right. But that's technology's kind of natural inertia for the most part is to take us in that direction. So we have to stand against it very intentionally. Yeah. Was it challenging for your, I mean, you talked about your congregation doing some of this as well. Was it a, a challenge for them to kind of accept some of these things? Because it's, a, it's fairly different from what many other pastors are doing. And so the level of accessibility of the pastor, um, that kind of thing. Was it, was it challenging for them to, to get on board with it? Well, I mean, I think that's going to be different for every church. And again, I, that's why I'm really careful that none of this is prescriptive. Some of this is a privilege of, you know, we have a staff of 20 people or something like that. And we very much move to a team kind of leadership model. We very intentionally don't call me the lead pastor. And um, in order to, there are other people that are much more accessible pastorally and we mm. have admins that are checking their email multiple times of the day. And mm -hmm. so I think overall our church is more accessible, you know, and when I'm with people, I want to be really with them, mm -hmm. like fully there and present and in love and in attention. And, you know, you just have to, do, so, so some of that is a privilege and a function of our kind of size church and the way our leadership structure is. And, um, I've had to give up a lot of kind of control. You know, you can't have freedom and 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 you know <laughs> responsibility. Yeah. So you know, I've had to I've had to give up. You can't have freedom and control. So I've had to give up a lot of control. And of course, there are always things that I would do differently. But I mean, overall, our team is amazing, and I'm so grateful to work with them. And I think honestly, I mean, I don't know. I can't speak for our church. I think they're grateful because the more that I can really live the way of Jesus and carve out time for my role, which happens for me, happens to involve long hours of study and reading mm -hmm. and thinking and preparing teachings, you know, as well as spiritual direction and leadership and strategy stuff. Everybody's role is different. Some other pastors in our church have very different roles. Um, but the more I can kind of do what I feel God made me to do, the more of a blessing I am, you know, to our church. So mm -hmm. I can't speak for them, but I, I think, I think they're all grateful that we've moved in this direction, those that have been around. But Again, you'd have to ask them. <laughs> sure. Yeah. Well, this is great. Is there anything, um, two last kind of things I'd like to talk about. One is uh, any advice for, for someone who uh, is thinking about uh, diving into this? Any, just any, any practical things or, or something you'd recommend for someone who says, boy, I really want to try this? Well, I think I would just really recommend that you 
put a high priority on rest. I think a lot of pastors don't for a mm-hmm. lot of different reasons. And, um, and I, I mean, I think obviously the easiest place to start is just like morning prayer without your phone. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think the, the biggest bang for your buck is a, is a high bar of entry, but is Sabbath. Mm-hmm. And I think for pastors whom just have an, a great psycho spiritual toll, our job is, is there's a lot to it emotionally and a lot to it spiritually, a lot of warfare and challenge and strenuous effort. It's very Pauline in that sense. Mm-hmm. And so I think we have to prioritize rest. I think there's a, a, an insidious lie from the enemy that says the more leadership you have or the more successful you are, or the more your church grows, your ministry grows, or your platform as gross as that word is grows or whatever. Therefore, the more you have to do like, mm. all right, now you're really at this spot. Now you're really the leader. Now you really have to do more. I actually think that if you chart the life of Jesus it's the Luke five thing, you know, Jesus often withdrew crowds came to hear him, but Jesus often withdrew to lonely places and prayed. And I think you can make a really strong case, at least from Luke's gospel, that the more in demand Jesus became, the more he would sneak away mm-hmm. to sleep, rest, pray, gather himself with close friends, process his emotions with God. There's a, um, I'm not a sports guy, but I've had a couple of my sports buddies tell me about this um, longstanding idea in baseball, and it's newer and far more controversial in the NBA, or at least when we have the NBA, um, <laughs> but uh, of load management. Mm. which is basically, you know, the ratio of rest to play. And so for baseball, it's been a long thing for pitchers because pitchers, no matter how good the pitcher is, in fact, the better the pitcher is, they can only throw X number of pitches. I forget what it is before they need like, you know, three to five days off. And this becomes a major problem when they get to like the world series or whatever, because there's not that long between games. Mm -hmm. So the very pitcher that brought the team to this, you know, place of acclaim Actually, now, if he were to play all the way through, would damage his arm and then be out for good, you know? Mm -hmm. And in the NBA, there's a similar kind of thing. And so there's this whole movement now to like actually, and not just for physical musculature, but even for the the mental toll of athletics at that level, professional sports. But it's a huge controversy because fans, like you show up for an NBA game and the star player is like, sitting on the bench that night, just drinking water and like nurturing his soul before God, (laughs) you know, you're like, what? I paid money to come to this game. This is entertainment. I paid money to see it. And I want to see this guy, you know, perform and do his thing. But actually for him to play at the, at the highest level possible, he needs to rest or that athlete needs to rest. I read an interesting book on Olympians recently and it said at the elite level, the difference between spectacular and great is not how hard somebody works, but how hard somebody rests. Wow. And it basically said, once you get to that level of kind of professional athlete, you know, the, the top level, everybody is working equally hard as far as their training. Mm. But really what separates the greats, you know, from the goods is how seriously they take rest, restoration, renewal. Again, not just physical, but mental, emotional, spiritual. And then I read this, um, I read that book, Ordering Your Private World by Gordon McDonald. Yeah. And the standout line to me, I just wonder, I just, as we were even praying and thinking, I wanted to quote this. The standout line in the whole book was this. He says, Jesus knew his limits well. Strange as it may seem, he knew what we conveniently forget. Time 
must be properly budgeted for the gathering of inner strength and resolve in order to compensate for one's weaknesses when spiritual warfare begins. Hmm. And that, I have just sat with that. I just, I can't think of a better way to frame my own felt experience of leadership. Time has to be properly budgeted, rule of life, rest, Sabbath, in order to kind of like gather strength and resolve and joy and buoyancy of spirit and health and vitality to compensate for your weaknesses mm. when spiritual warfare begins. Yeah. Because when we go into spiritual warfare, if that's Sunday or if that's a leadership meeting or if that's a whatever, one-on-one uh, -on -one pastoral counseling thing, man, we all bring our weaknesses to it. If that's that I'm anxious or melancholy or I can be controlling or whatever your shadow side is, rest, you know, we've all seen the personality test. Like this is you rested and this is what you're like under stress. And we're always like, oh, ouch, I don't want to be that person. <laughs> right. None of us are our best person under stress. We're all, at least not by the metrics of Jesus, we're all far worse. And so rest enables our weaknesses to be compensated and diminished, you know? So I think, man, if I could talk to myself 15 years ago, I would just say, please place a high priority of rest. View yourself almost like a spiritual athlete where, yes, it's important to show up and train as hard as you possibly can. And yes, it's important to do your very best at the game or the competition, but it's just as important to rest and treat your body with care and view yourself as a whole person. And, you know, the greatest, it's Ruth Haley Barton's line, the greatest gift you give the people lead is your transforming self, mm -hmm. you know, and I just, I could not agree more. Yeah. Well, it occurs to me, you know, the importance of that, that, you know, Sabbath is a, a commandment and it's, yes, it's given to, it's given to people as a gift from God. Yes. It's, it's almost like God knew what he was doing. And uh, as he, as he gives almost. us gift. And, uh, and you know, it's so interesting in the 10 commandments, Sabbath, unless if I'm misreading it, is the only commandment that would qualify as like what we call a spiritual discipline. Right. You know, it's the only one that I would, that would, that I would view as like, this is like a practice. It's a thing mm -hmm. you schedule. It's a, you know, the other ones are more have to do with behavior, sin, spirituality. Mm -hmm. So it's really interesting that the one spiritual discipline that God put in the 10 commandments, it wasn't even prayer. Right. It wasn't fasting. It wasn't worship on Sunday. Obviously those are all very important things, but it was Sabbath. It's yeah. really interesting that, Something about the human condition, we have to be commanded to receive the gift of rest. Yeah, that's, that's interesting. Well, I, I would love to keep talking about this, but our time is almost, uh, almost gone. Okay. Are there any, um, anything that you would recommend, uh, your book and your workbook? I'm going to put those in the show notes. Anything else you'd recommend for our, our listeners that they might want to check out as they want to explore this? Um, no, I mean, just uh, obviously the work of Dallas Willard has has framed kind of so much of my thinking and John Ortberg, who's done a job popping his work and adding John's own psychological insight as a you know PhD in psychology. And then Emotionally Healthy Spirituality by the Scazzeros, that, mm -hmm. that, that really began my journey. That, that came to me at the same time. And it was so life-changing and I still don't really know of a better entry point resource and not just entry point not like it's just for beginners I come back to it on a regular basis but in particular for about five years I just sat with the emotionally healthy church that old his original book I just sat with that book and read it and reread it and reread it and <laughs> went through the exercises and man uh, I still come back to it and it just has had an enormous impact on me great 
Well, thank you for that. And, and John Mark, thank you so much for being a guest on this podcast. I really enjoyed this time and I'm sure our listeners have benefited from it as well and enjoyed it. So, so, so thank you in the midst of your, uh, your ministry to take the time to share with, our, with me and our listeners. It's such an honor. Thank you, Peter. My pleasure. Thank you for listening to Whole and Holy, the Bethel Seminary podcast. Uh, if you are interested in providing any feedback, please email us at whole-and-holy at bethel.edu. We'd welcome any feedback you have, any suggestions for future episodes. I'd encourage you to subscribe to this podcast so that you make sure you don't miss a, an episode. If you want to give us a, a rating on iTunes or Stitcher or anything like that, the higher our ratings, the easier it is for people to find us. So we appreciate those readings. Thank you all for listening. Thanks for subscribing and God bless you. Thank you for listening to Whole and Holy. This podcast is a production of Bethel Seminary in collaboration with Bethel University's Office of Church Relations. Please share your feedback with us, including ideas you'd like to see in future episodes, by emailing us at wholeandholy at bethel.edu. Once again, that address is wholeandholy at bethel.edu. And don't forget to subscribe to this podcast at iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts.